Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained podcast and subscribe today. Tea Quorum is a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Every Wednesday, tune in for presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. Learn more at tquorum.com. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Need cash but don't want to sell your crypto? Use Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and withdraw funds today. Starting from only 5.9% APR. Create an account at nexo.io. Today's guest is Nate Madry, Senior Research Analyst at Coinmetrics. Welcome, Nate. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me back. Coinmetrics published a report this week called The Rise of Stablecoins. What are the top takeaways from your report? So the top takeaways are basically, so when I started the report, I started by looking at kind of the history of stablecoins over time. But when I started digging into the data, I refocused it around specifically the rise of Tether. So over the last three to four months, the supply of Tether specifically has more than doubled, which has pushed the supply of overall stablecoins to new highs. And why did you decide to look into stablecoins now? Um, You did talk a little bit about how Tether has risen. Can you put some numbers on that? Yeah, sure. So to put it in a little context, so it took about five years for stablecoin supply to reach six billion overall. And it only took another four months for it to grow from six billion to, to 12 billion. And pretty much all of that growth happened after the March 12th crypto crash, when crypto assets, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, dropped over 50% in a day. So in the report, I really dug into why that happened and why the rise was sparked by this crash in cryptos, which is a little counterintuitive because in the past when we've seen spikes in stablecoins, especially Tether, it's kind of coincided with Bitcoin price going up. And what did you find? Basically what happened is, is first of all, there there was a big increase in demand for stablecoins and Tether specifically um, following March 12th. That happened for a, a variety of reasons. Um, the first is that there was a rush, rush to safety after March 12th. So people started piling into stablecoins. Trading volume also went up. So there, there was an increased demand for stablecoins, which are also all, often used as a quote currency in trading. But this rise in demand caused Tether price to rise above a dollar. You know, So typically when we think of stablecoins, they're pegged to a dollar. Their whole point is that they should be stable at a dollar. But this large increase in demand after March 12th led to this increase in Tether price all the way through the end of May. And that increase in price then led to arbitrage opportunities. So because of, of stablecoins' um, nature as, as, a, as a peg currency, anytime it deviates from that $1 peg, 
there's opportunity to make money. So when we see this huge increase in supply, billions of stable coins suddenly being printed, a lot of that is tied to the fact that if whoever is printing these stable coins or buying them at a dollar can then go and sell them immediately on an exchange and make a lot of money, essentially. And so wait, which stable coins were veering away from the $1 peg? So all, pretty much all of them um, went significantly above their peg on March 12th, specifically. Um, and that was because of, of the price crash and related to kind of the BitMEX liquidation spiral and crypto prices just crashing. But most of them recovered quickly, except for Tether. Tether is kind of the big outlier here, while the rest of the stablecoins, USDC and PAX, went back close to that $1 peg. Tether stayed above that peg for, for a couple of months. And it's just kind of like fractions of a penny above the peg. But that small amount above the peg has huge consequences and can lead to a lot of arbitrage opportunities. And so why why has Tether been far and away the most dominant stablecoin? Yeah, so if you look back throughout throughout its history, Tether has accounted for 90% plus of, of the overall stablecoin supply. Um, it, it's past is a little more sorted. So, you know, as, as most people in crypto are aware, Tether has a little bit of a sketchy history. There's questions about whether it's really fully backed and reserved. Um, but for whatever reason, that has never really stopped it from becoming, from being the dominant coin. Um, the, the big thing that happened is, first of all, it just had a first mover advantage. It was basically the first big stable coin. It started getting momentum from there and it basically became one of the dominant um, trading currencies and as, as I show in the report, too, Tether has a lot more liquidity than other stable coins. So since it has more liquidity, that kind of begets more liquidity. People, more people use it. Um, there are questions about what really is driving this demand. It's a little harder to, to figure that out, um, especially if you're just looking at on-chain and market data. But there have been a lot of reports that Tether is used extensively um, in Asian trading markets, especially in China. Uh, it's used a lot for OTC trading. It's used kind of as a replacement, as, as a fiat on-ramp. Um, in places where there's restrictions about trading fiat directly for, for cryptocurrency. And I think kind of that that gray area that Tether lives in, which I was just referring to about the regulatory kind of sketchiness, that's a lot of what makes Tether attractive in a way to, to certain traders or OTC desks or whatever who are kind of living living in the gray area need to quickly get current get access to cryptocurrency and might not be able to if they're playing within, you know, the the regulations of their jurisdiction. Um, so that's driven a lot of it. And and again, it's this kind of, even though Tether is supposed to be pegged to a dollar, it's almost like a feature of Tether in a way that it's not pegged to a dollar rather than a bug, because since it's it, it fluctuates more than other cryptocurrencies, that just leads to this kind of disproportionate explosion in supply of people who are trying to profit off of it, basically. And I, can you just walk me through the arbitrage opportunity so essentially, yeah. I'm assuming you buy another stable coin. Just, yeah, walk me through how that works. How are yeah, people yeah. making money from so, this? Yeah, so the kind of simplest, most base, uh, straightforward way. So, you know, Tether on paper, the way it's supposed to work is you put a dollar into the Tether reserve, then you can get a dollar out, a USDT out. Um, so whoever has access to, to printing more Tether, to putting more money into the reserve, which is we actually don't really know exactly who has it, but it's a handful of, of kind of traders and, and exchanges and stuff. They they can then go in and essentially print more Tether for a dollar each, sell it on exchanges right away where it's trading for more dollar and make quick, quick money. So that's kind of the most basic example. But anyone who has access to buying Tether at a dollar 
um, which even if even if the price on most exchanges is over a dollar, there's still opportunities to buy it for a dollar either on other exchanges or the the kind of best way is just going straight to the source, putting more money into Tether Reserve and printing new Tether. Anyone who's able to buy it for a dollar can then go and sell it for the higher price. And there there are kind of um, you know markets on different exchanges too for trading Tether directly to USD or even other stable coins. But I think a majority of it happened from people printing new Tether and then selling that new Tether immediately for for a profit. And, and But normally when there are arbitrage opportunities, they kind of get evened out because, yeah, um, yeah so why didn't that happen? Why did it stay above the peg? <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of one of the mysteries of this. Why did it stay above the peg for so long? Because, yeah, exactly like you said, like kind of arbitrage and naturally will pull the price back to a dollar as people are, are selling it. Um, so that, that's one of the mysteries here is how did it stay so far above the peg for a couple of months? Um and I'm, I'm not sure. I wish I had a better answer about that. It, it's a little opaque just with the nature of Tether. It's a little opaque how this entire process works of printing new Tether. Who gets it? We're not really sure. Uh, past research has shown that when new Tether is printed, a lot of it goes directly to a certain set of exchanges, Bitfinex being the biggest one, um, OTC desks as well, which are, are hard to track. So, yeah, it's 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 confusing exactly how this process is working, but... This appears to be what happening. I have a interesting graph in the in the report um, that shows the days where where Tether's price is above the peg, above a dollar, um, on one axis, and then the other axis is the new Tether supply that's being issued. Um, and we actually use we use a metric at CoinMetric called free float supply, which shows the amount of supply that's actually getting out there into the public, as opposed to the supply that just is being held by the treasury. So if you look at these two together. The free float supply, the increase in free float supply just perfectly lines up with the days that Tether's price is above a dollar. And then as soon as it goes below a dollar, the, the supply flow stops and then kind of picks back up when it's above again. And what do you but what do you think that means, that correlation? Yeah, so that's that's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle that I, I would love to figure out next. But I, I think it means that someone is essentially whoever has access to printing this tether is printing it at large quantities when they have the opportunity to do so. And then when when there's not the money-making opportunity, there's just not as much incentive to print this tether. So they stop printing it, which is, it's a little confusing because there is there is some sort of demand in the first place that's causing the price to go above a dollar, right? There's increased demand coming from somewhere. There's someone on the other side who's buying the tether, right? Um, but we don't know exactly who, who they are or who's who the people are selling. And we don't know why demand has stayed high for, for so long. But there's something happening there, the connection between the two that's that's driving the supply growth. All right. In a moment, we're going to discuss how stable coins work, why it is that traditionally the supply is risen with the price of Bitcoin, what happened on Black Friday, etc. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve both of these goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also allows you to earn up to 8% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at Nexo.io. Looking to connect with thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts? Welcome to T-Quorum, a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Each week will feature presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. 
Interested in speaking at Teakworm? Submit your presentation ideas, and the Tezos community will vote on who comes to the podium next. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at teakworm.com. Back to my conversation with Nate Madry. Traditionally, stablecoin supply has risen with the price of Bitcoin, and obviously that changed this year. But you know, why do you think that shift happened? As I mentioned, when I kind of initially started to do this report, I, I looked at the history. Um, I should mention, too, that this report was partnership with Bitstamp. And, and Bitstamp had, had kind of asked us to go back and look, starting at the history of stablecoins, what was happening. Um, so th- I think throughout a lot of Tether's history, it's early history. So 2017, 2018, when Tether was rising with the price of Bitcoin, that was more intertwined to, to Bitcoin's rise. And there's a lot of theories about what happened first, whether Tether was being printed first and then sold for Bitcoin and vice versa. But I think this this situation in 2020 is different. Um, I think the arbitrage opportunities have really come come to the forefront here a lot because the market infrastructure in general has just improved so much since then. There are more opportunities to do this. Um, Tether has a lot more liquidity than ever before. And because, because those billions of dollars of Tether got printed in 2018, 2019, there's now just so much tether out there, which which makes these other opportunities possible, basically. All right. So let's now just dive a little bit more into the stable coins. So why is it that you think that some of the stable coins remained truer to the $1 price than others? Like in general, how is it that these different types of stable coins, and I recognize, you know, there are different categories. How do they typically remain stable in price? Most other stable coins stayed a state more stable. Um, USDC is, is probably the biggest example. It's the second biggest stable coin. Um, so yeah, I mean, normally there's, the process is pretty simple. You know, it's, it's as long as they have kind of a dollar in reserve for each of these stable coins, it, it will, it, it kind of goes by supply and demand, right? Like if supply, if demand goes up faster than supply, then price is going to go up. But for the most part, the, these stable coins operate relatively transparently. I think USDC and, and Paxos and others have done a better job of doing this. And they're just more fully, freely available on Coinbase and other exchanges. But yeah, there, there's there's some, I think, just the nature of Tether of it being a little more through back channels where a lot of this trading happens. It's not, you know, USDC is mostly on Coinbase and other exchanges, but these are spread out everywhere. You know, no one really knows what's going on. But I think that's part part of what leads to the price fluctuations. Uh, we did see fluctuations of a couple of other stablecoins to die in particular went way above its peg. That's more related just to its decentralized nature. Um, since DAI is backed by cryptocurrency and it's backed by a bunch of different people or entities instead of one company that's holding it all. Uh, when the price crashed, the crypto price crashed on March 12th, that essentially caused a lot of the collateral backing DAI to be liquidated. And that, that caused an extreme shortage of DAI in the system. So that's, again, the supply and demand at work. All of a sudden, there was much less DAI supply, DAI price shot up and it's still it's still up as well um so the mechanics are a little bit different there and then another one that we saw off its peg was gemini coin gusd and that's more related to a really low supply there's only like 10 million or less actually that has been printed so there's just no liquidity there i think and, and no real demand for it and um wh- so what types of crypto users tend to be holding stable coins a majority of it is used for trading and um, so I, there's another chart I have in the report, which shows if you actually look at the addresses that are holding Tether, especially the Ethereum version of Tether, because Tether has been printed on multiple blockchains. 
But if you look at the addresses that are holding it, so I actually broke it down by basically whale addresses. So if you look at addresses that are holding at least a million dollars worth of tether or more, those addresses are holding, I think it's close to 4 billion tether uh, out of the total supply. So a huge amount of tether is being held by these very large addresses. Most of these addresses are exchanges. So that shows, and there was a big uptick in the, in the amount that these addresses were holding after March 12th. So to me, that, that shows that a lot of the stable coins are just held on exchanges, essentially parked on the sideline um, as, as kind of a safe haven asset, either just so that so people can just have kind of a, a crypto form of safe, steady asset ready to reinvest if the market goes back up. Um, or it might be the exchanges themselves. You know, a lot of exchanges are, might be changing some of their fiat into Tether or stable coins to take advantage of kind of portability and liquidity and, and kind of inter-exchange settlement. So I think that's that's the big first chunk. And of course, the exchanges are holding those, but it's individual investors who have it on the exchanges, which complicates a little bit. But then the other interesting thing we saw is that if you look at um, also smaller addresses, so addresses that are holding $1,000 or less worth of Tether, those also skyrocketed after March 12th. So it, it looks like there are kind of two different things probably happening. There's um, money being held on exchanges. There's money being held on the sideline. Again, there's there's demand just for trading itself for using it as a quote currency. But then there also appears to be individuals outside of exchanges just holding smaller amounts. And it's a little harder to figure out what exactly they're doing with it. Um, it could be potentially that people are using it more as a medium of exchange like, for example, you know, global remittances, cross-border payments, Tether and sta- stable coins in general. It's kind of a perfect use case for them, especially now with, with everything that's happening in the world. So I, I suspect that's probably happening as well. But it's a little harder to kind of find the evidence for that directly. And maybe for some of those people who live in economies with currencies that are undergoing inflation, they might be simply using it for savings, too. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a big part of it, too. Um, I would love to kind of look through economies where, where especially where their fiat currency is um, is get it, is decreasing compared to the dollar. They can just kind of park it in Tether or stablecoins instead, and it's a way to, to, to hold their value while no matter what happens with their regular currency. And you talked a little bit before about why it is that stablecoins tend to be traded more in other jurisdictions. And so why is it why is it that traders in places like the US or North America just maybe aren't as you know huge users of stablecoins? We are starting to see more shift from USD to um, stablecoins as well, even in the US. But I, I think it's it, it's mostly we see a disproportionately large amount of users in Asia and China specifically just because of China effectively bans, you know, fiat to crypto trading a couple of years ago. So I think that's why you see more there. Um, but we're seeing it in the U.S. as well. I think it's you see it all over because it just it, it makes more sense for for crypto use cases that you get less fees than if you're converting back and forth to fiat. It's easier to, to you essentially have more liquidity. You can easily send it throughout exchanges. So. And do you feel like there are certain segments that use certain uh, stable coins? Yeah, definitely. There, there are different use cases for the different stable coins. And there's, there's another chart in the report that looks at the median transfer value of different stable coins. And there are a couple kind of um, BUSD, which is Binance coin, and HUSD, which is Huobi. So two kind of exchange back coins. Those have really high median of uh, medium of exchange values. So it's like $10,000 plus. 
So that shows that it's either being used for kind of large trades or maybe inter-exchange settlement. But then the rest of them kind of range between $1,000 and less. Um, Paxos is at the bottom towards $100. That shows they're being used for, for different purposes. Um, you know, Paxos might be used for more kind of medium of exchange type type deal, while Tether, which is, I think, the median transfer value is about 1000 That's probably still being used more for trading. I think, though, even even... That being said, I think we'd probably see it a little lower. The median transfer value is a little lower if it was truly being used as medium of exchange or even for remittances. So it'll be interesting to see how those those values change kind of over the upcoming months and years. Yeah. And the other thing that's fascinating about this chart is that the Tether one fluctuates a lot more in terms of yeah. the median transfer value than some of the other ones like PAX or HUSD, which... Is that mm-hmm. the Huobis? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I guess that means maybe whales are moving in and out or something like that. Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> or, or larger trades happening. Yeah. yeah. It could be related to the exchanges too, because you know, when the exchanges shift large amounts around, it, that'll get caught in there as well. Well, I guess not as much of the median, but yeah. And then what about stablecoin velocity? Um, against Bitcoin and Ether, what did you find there? Yeah, so stablecoins have a significantly higher velocity than, than both Bitcoin and Ether. And velocity is basically just a measure of the amount of times that um, a unit of supply changes hands throughout the past year. So like every time it's transferred from one address to another, that gets counted towards velocity. So, uh, so Bitcoin and Ethereum are both around six or so, six or seven. So that means each unit of supply will will change hands about six to seven times throughout a year on average. Stable coins are much higher, um, 50, 60 plus. So that shows that they are being exchanged much more frequently. Um, so they're getting passed around. That shows they're being used more like a medium of exchange. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're being used as a medium of exchange, but they have those properties. Again, it's probably somewhat related to trading because they're just used, used back and forth in trading. Um, but I think it's interesting because it, it, it shows that stable coins are, are basically starting to take over this kind of medium of exchange narrative that people have talked a, a lot, you know, even going back to Bitcoin's, you know, what the Bitcoin white paper was, was talked about potentially being a medium of exchange. I think we're starting to really see stable coins fill that void as opposed to Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are more used as, you know, a store of value or, or kind of other other purposes. Yeah. And we see that also in the chart called total adjusted transfer value, where for the first time, and I guess it's just uh, maybe the last month or so, that the total adjusted transfer value in stable coins has exceeded that of Bitcoin, which for pretty much all of history, um, at least till the beginning of your chart, which is in uh, January or or the winter of 2019, that um, yeah. it's always been Bitcoin. So what is what do you think of that? What does that say to you? Yeah, so I think it's it's a really interesting flipping. It's interesting that it's happening now. Um, I kind of look at taking a step back. I think stable coins are basically the first killer app on top of Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, it's, it's a stable coins are a very simple application, but they are an application and most mostly built on Ethereum. So I think it's interesting that we're starting to kind of see now this first big application built on top of blockchains are starting to to move past you know Bitcoin specifically, and it's been past Ethereum for a while. So I think it's a sign of things to come. There are going to be more and more of these different applications on blockchains, and it'll be interesting to see the interplay between these different types of tokens and apps and the chains itself. 
Like, is stablecoin going to start? Is it going to be beneficial to Ethereum? Is it going to start being parasitic to Ethereum? We'll see, but I think it's going to be really interesting watching it over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I saw Camilla Russo tweeted recently that the market cap of all ERC-20 tokens has exceeded that of Ethereum itself. And I wonder if that will change when Ethereum moves to proof of stake or just how that, yeah, there's just so many fluctuating factors at play right now. Yeah, there's so many variables. Yeah. All right. Well, and is is there anything that you're looking toward in terms of the future about where stable coins are going or any metrics you're watching? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I'm watching right now is just more in the the regulation front. You know, there's there's new regulatory scrutiny on Tether. And I kind of feel even though Tether is is so huge, it, it feels like it's been on this precarious ground for a while now. Um, so I'm I'm watching pretty closely to see whether this new round of regulation is actually going to change things um, or not. And I think the other interesting thing that, that I'm watching is the rise of stablecoins within DeFi, within decentralized finance, especially USDC now is being incorporated a lot into decentralized finance. And that could kind of be a transition between these more speculative use cases with stablecoins, you know, arbitrage and trading, et cetera, to more kind of real crypto native use cases, which, which could really take the adoption to the next level. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that's interesting about the USDC was that news about how they blacklisted that one address and yeah. all the DeFi people were up in arms about that. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. yeah, and it's a real concern. It is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been very fascinating. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you so much, Laura. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. How much in fees are you paying for crypto purchases? Now, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee when you buy crypto. Apart from crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping with Crypto.com. Get up to 10% back when you pay with their MCO Visa card. No card? Use the Crypto.com app to buy gift cards for up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, Twitter hack reaches VIP user accounts to perpetrate a Bitcoin scam. A coordinated attack hacked numerous high-profile Twitter accounts, such as those of Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Kanye West, Jeff Bezos, Joe Biden, and Barack Obama to run a Bitcoin scam. The corporate accounts of Apple and Uber were compromised, as were the accounts of a host of influential players in the crypto space including Binance, Gemini, Coinbase, Coindesk, Charlie Lee, and others. Larry Cermak, director of research at The Block, compiled all the high-profile Twitter hacks in chronological order. He says, quote, The takeaway is that the hackers started with large crypto accounts and stuck to only a few formats and addresses. The hacker then moved to non-crypto celebrities two hours after the first hack. It's totally unacceptable that it took Twitter to act as long as it did. At 4.17 p.m. Eastern Time, it was absolutely clear to anyone that was paying attention that Twitter was compromised. It took Twitter two hours at 6.05 p.m. Eastern Time to start acting. Initially, these hacked accounts promoted a Bitcoin giveaway scam associated with an organization dubbed Crypto for Health. Later, the hackers posted tweets with a Bitcoin address along with messages such as, I am giving back to the community. All Bitcoins sent to the address below will be sent back doubled. If you send $1,000, I will send back $2,000. Only doing this for 30 minutes. Enjoy.
While Twitter reacted quickly to remove many of the messages, similar tweets were sent again from the same accounts, indicating that the hackers had completely overwhelmed Twitter security. The popular social media platform had to eventually disable some of its services temporarily to prevent the scam from spreading further. On Thursday, the Federal Bureau of Investigation said it had opened an attack, an investigation into the hours-long hack. According to reports, the Bitcoin wallets promoted in the tweets received over 300 transactions in Bitcoin worth more than $100,000, indicating that some Twitter users did fall prey to the scam. A Twitter investigation revealed that the hackers had compromised employee accounts in a coordinated social engineering attack. Security experts have suggested that the blame for the incident squarely rests with Twitter due to security flaws in its service. However, a new report by Vice even suggests that the hackers may have convinced a Twitter employee to help coordinate these takeovers. Following the hacks, the social media platform is now restricting posts containing crypto addresses. It has disabled the ability to share strings of numbers and letters on its site typically used in crypto addresses. According to tests conducted by the block research, Litecoin, XRP, Monero, Bitcoin, and Ethereum could not be shared through the tweets. Next headline. Grayscale records largest quarterly inflows in Q2 2020. Digital asset manager Grayscale has recorded its largest quarterly inflows ever in Q2 2020. The company raised $906 million in that quarter, a nearly 100% jump from its previous highs of $504 million in Q1 2020. The company said in a report, quote, for the first time, inflows into Grayscale's products over a six-month period crossed the $1 billion threshold, demonstrating sustained demand for digital asset exposure despite a backdrop characterized by economic uncertainty. Following a successful quarter, cumulative investment across Grayscale's digital asset products has now reached $2.6 billion. Its products, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and Grayscale Ethereum Trust, both experienced record quarterly inflows of $751 million and $135 million, respectively. Grayscale's products also saw interest from new investors who accounted for 57% of the investor base in Q2 2020. In the same period, 81% of the existing institutional investors allocated their investments toward multiple products. Grayscale's total, Grayscale's total AUM now stands at $4 billion. Next headline. ERC-20 token market cap now surpasses that of Ethereum. As Ethereum inches closer to ETH 2.0, the ERC-20 token ecosystem seems to be having its own big moment. According to data compiled by Camilla Russo, founder at crypto media publication The Defiant, the ERC-20 tokens running on the, e- on the Ethereum network had a cumulative market cap of $33 billion, while its native token ETH was at a market cap of $27 billion. Many of the popular ERC-20 tokens u- are used in DeFi, and according to Decrypt, DeFi tokens are growing at a faster rate than that of Bitcoin. Interestingly, Camilla tweeted, the Ethereum economy is now more valuable than the asset securing it. This challenges the FAT protocol thesis, which says blockchain protocols capture more value than their apps. Next headline, Coinbase plans first ever investor day. Coinbase has planned its first investor day on August 14th, fueling rumors that the exchange is exploring options to go public. 
A Coinbase spokesperson said that the upcoming meeting is meant to, quote, facilitate a wider understanding of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. Last week, there were reports that the exchange may be planning a stock market listing later this year. The announcement of this investor day comes at a time when Coinbase is facing flack from the crypto community for providing its blockchain analytics software to the U.S. Secret Service. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong wrote a tweet thread to defend his company's decision of licensing analytics software to government agencies. He argued that blockchain analytics software has been around for a long time and said that people still had the option of using privacy coins if they wanted, quote, true privacy. However, on Twitter, Larry Cermak of The Block pointed out various inconsistencies that he saw in Brian's tweets, saying, quote, What's still not clear is whether Coinbase is giving government agencies access to the full cluster of all their addresses. Coinbase has always had a notoriously difficult set of addresses to cluster. That data is only ever probabilistic unless you are Coinbase. Remember that in 2018, Coinbase served client data of 13,000 users to the IRS. When you combine client data exports with perfect knowledge of the cluster, it creates a new dangerous dynamic. Next headline. PayPal confirms it is developing crypto capabilities. PayPal has confirmed that it is monitoring the crypto space closely and developing crypto capabilities. The payments giant had written a letter to the European Commission in March where it said, quote, PayPal is continuously monitoring and evaluating global developments in the crypto and blockchain slash distributed ledger space. It also said it is taking, quote, unilateral and tangible steps to further develop its capabilities in this area, confirming further earlier reports that it will offer buying and selling of crypto. Next headline. Opera hit with $300,000 in penalties by SEC and CFTC over illegal swaps. The SEC and CFTC filed and settled charges against crypto app Opera, which Disclosure is a previous sponsor of my shows, for a product that enabled people to, quote, get synthetic price exposure to the price movements of stocks and exchange-traded funds fund or ETF shares that trade in the United States. The SEC charged Opera and its Philippine-based partner company Plutus Technologies for, quote, offering and selling security-based swaps to retail investors without registration or for failing to transact those swaps on a registered national exchange. On the other hand, the CFTC charged both firms for entering into, quote, illegal off-exchange swaps in digital assets and foreign currency with customers and registration violations. Even though the Arbor products were technically not securities, the SEC said that these swaps were nonetheless subject to U.S. securities law. Will this open a can of worms for other DeFi products? Blockchain consultant Maya Zahavi certainly thinks so. She tweeted, quote, Methinks the SEC and CFTC are starting to signal they don't like DeFi. The legal construct Abra used in these swaps contracts is essentially the same as those underlying most DeFi products. Hence, they can potentially, the same, potentially face the same exact charges. Fun bits! Meet Amiti Utarwar, the first confirmed female Bitcoin core developer. Forbes ran a feature on Amiti Utarwar, the first confirmed woman developer of Bitcoin Core. She's an ex-Coinbase employee and Chain Code Labs alumna, and her talk, titled Attacking Bitcoin Core, is one of the most comprehensive presentations on the Bitcoin network. Her work focuses on two main areas of the network, privacy and test coverages. Test coverage. <laughs> Definitely check out this profile. All right. 
Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Nate and Coinmetrics, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of this episode. And don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.